I want to, we've been talking about worship on Sunday mornings. Jim came back and landed with a splash. Had a phenomenal sermon this morning, I thought. And, and, and kind of part of that, we haven't had a, an ongoing Sunday night series, but I wanted to kind of tackle in a roundabout way an issue that's related to worship. Uh, and that's what we're doing here in Isaiah chapter 40, where we're starting. I don't know if you've noticed, if you follow the news and kept up with stuff, it's been an interesting few weeks in uh, local politics in Oklahoma. You guys know, five miles from this church building has been kind of the center of the ongoing cultural clash between religion and culture. You know what I'm talking about? The Oklahoma Supreme Court ordered that the 10-foot monument, granite monument of the Ten Commandments, be removed from the front of the Oklahoma State Capitol. And not everybody's pleased with that decision. (laughs) And so Governor Fallon has ordered that it be kept in place while the court orders a review. Uh, What's interesting is I, I follow these. Politics and religion fascinates me. It makes for interesting conversation. And what's interesting and frustrating is that I side with the opposite side this time. Only because of the arguments being made. Because the people who wanted to stay there on the grounds of the Capitol are saying, it's just a historical thing. It's part of our cultural tradition. It's a historical thing. And so it should stay for that reason. And the ACLU and the other side say, no, it is a sacred text that's there. And if it's a sacred text, the state constitution says we can't give any ground for any observance of religious things. And so I find myself saying, it is a sacred text. And we're fooling ourselves if we say it's just a historical piece of granite. But I don't, I don't want to get into the legal cause of that. Lynn Fearhelm could make a better case for either side on that. And, but let me, let me say this, and then I'll tell you why I brought this up. Our country is not in the mess it's in because we're removing the Ten Commandments from the steps of the Capitol. It's because we've removed the law of God from our home. That's why it's in the mess we're in. Okay, that's free. That's not even part of the sermon. That's just free. But what is it about the Ten Commandments that's so offensive to people? Have you ever thought about this? What is it about those ten laws, given all the way back in Exodus chapter 20, that people find objectionable? Because if we're honest, out of the Ten Commandments, five or six of them, Five or six of them are enshrined in our own legal code in the state and in our federal laws. Don't steal. Don't murder. False witness. Don't do that. Even honor your father and mother. While while it's not against the law to dishonor them, there's still a measure in our in our system that says parents have certain authoritative rights over their children. And even the Sabbath day. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Uh, where do you think a lot of our labor laws come from? And the concept of you've got to give people a day of rest. You've got to give people certain caps of how long they... That's a concept that goes back to God. But it's those other ones, those legal things in the Ten Commandments, the special religious ones that make things uncomfortable for people. Commandment number one, you shall have no other gods before me. 
commandment number two. You shall not make for yourself an idol, whether in the form of anything that is in heaven above, or that is on earth beneath, or is in the water under the sea. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Commandment number three. You shall not make wrongful use of the name of the Lord your God. You see, it turns out that the commandment to worship the Lord only has proven to be the most controversial and the most difficult for cultures to honor. And not just in modern day. It's in the history of Israel. And this baffles me. It fascinates me. So here we are, Isaiah chapter 44. And Isaiah chapter 44 is such an interesting text because, in essence, in this section of Isaiah, Isaiah is making fun of people who worship idols. He is not being politically correct here about people of other faiths and religions. Isaiah was not one to believe we all worship the same God just by different means. That's not in this text. And Isaiah is not one to say everybody has an equal valid opinion on how they should worship or whom they shall worship. In fact, what you have in Isaiah 44 is one of the hardest and one of the most sarcastic texts against idolatry there is. And he paints this funny picture. He, he says, in essence, think about this. A guy goes out and first he plants a tree. And all this planting and, and, and the tree grows up, and then he cuts the tree down, and, and the guy's tired from all the work. It wears him out. And then he takes that tree, and half of it he cuts, and half of it he builds a fire with to cook with. And the other half, he fashions this god out of it. And then he's so tired, and he pleads to this god that he made himself and, and asked that god to answer and to help him. You know how foolish that looks? You don't, you don't even have the strength to get you through the process of making the God, and then a weak person makes an even weaker God, and then pleads to that God to help and strengthen you. And this picture that Isaiah paints in chapter 44 of idolatry is just goofy. And, and you read Isaiah 44 and you ask, well, who would be tempted to worship an idol anyway? And it's so interesting that idolatry, when you read the Ten Commandments, of all the Ten Commandments that's in there, you would think this one at least, no other gods before me, no graven image, don't misuse the name of the Lord your God. Of all the Ten Commandments, this one, these would be easiest to keep. Don't you think? I mean, let's be honest. Covetousness? Sometimes your neighbor buys a nice new car or adds on to their house. That can be kind of hard. Don't steal. Sometimes you tell your boss you worked more hours than you actually did, or you go to work and don't work at all. That's another form of stealing. That one's kind of tempting. But of all the of all the commandments, the one that's easiest you might think to get through, and that one I'm not going to suffer with, is idolatry. Let's check. How many of you on the way to church today were tempted to go to the Buddhist temple or a Hindu temple and worship one of their thousands of gods tonight? How many of you were tempted to murder on the drive on Broadway Extension coming in? Yeah, Teresa, I thought. See, of all the commandments, that one doesn't seem to strike us as difficult. 
But I want to suggest that it's harder than you might think. And look at the life of Israel. It doesn't take long to realize that this is a big deal to God. It is the first of the Ten Commandments. But I want to show you something. Exodus chapter 34. Exodus chapter 34. This is, we'll go back and show you another story in just a little bit. But chapter 34 and verse 11, this is, God knows what's going on. God knows the struggle. He knows the temptations they're going to face. Verse 11, chapter 34. Observe what I command you today. See, I'll drive out before you the Ammonites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites. Take care not to make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you are going. Or it will become a snare among you. You shall tear down the altars, break down their pillars, cut down their sacred poles, for you shall worship no other god, because the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. You shall not make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, for when, you, when they prostitute themselves to their god and sacrifice to their gods, someone among them will invite you and you'll eat of the sacrifice. And you will take wives from among their daughters for your sons, and their daughters who prostitute themselves to their gods will make your sons also prostitute themselves to their God. God says, look, when you get into the land, whatever you do, you have to erase any temptation to worship another God. Because it's going to be there. You're going to see their altars. You're going to see all these things. And you're going to want to worship their gods. And then you're going to see, your, your sons are going to see their, their daughters. And your, your sons are going to want to go to church with their daughters. It's just the church they go to and the God they worship are not me. God knows the temptation that Israel is going to have to fight this temptation of idolatry. You get it again in Deuteronomy chapter 7. And in essence, it's the same list, the same concept. When you get in the land, get rid of their stuff. Don't make a covenant. Don't marry their people. Or else you'll be tempted to leave worshiping me. It seems like an easy command, but it turns out to be more difficult for Israel than, than you expect. I'll show you one more. This is Leviticus chapter 19. Sometimes when you read the Old Testament, you, you come across weird, strange laws. And this one is sometimes read and kind of read out of context. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 26. You shall not eat anything with its blood. You shall not practice augury or witchcraft. You shall not round off the hair of your temples or mar the edges of your beard. You shall not make any gashes on your flesh for the dead or tattoo any marks upon you. I am the Lord God. Uh, if you go back to verse 23, when you come into the land and plant all kinds of trees for food, you shall regard their fruit as forbidden. Uh, three years it shall be. You read some of these laws and you think, why in the world does God care about that? I mean, you go back and when you plant a field, don't plant a field that's got two different kinds of seed in it. Or when you when you wear clothing, don't have clothing that's made up of two different kinds of material. Don't tattoo yourself. This one, every time at church camp, when we go to church camp, we do a Q&A with the question and answers. And tattooing always gets asked, is it a sin to tattoo your body? You know, all these teenagers wanting to know. And then they always throw, yeah, well, what if you tattoo a Bible verse on it? And this is the text that people usually go to. No, tattoos are evil and tattoos are wrong. 
But the context of that, I'm not a fan of tattoos, don't get me wrong, but the context of Leviticus chapter 19 is don't do this because that's what the, the idol worshipers do. And when you do something that marks yourself as belonging to somebody else, you're worshiping another god. And don't do anything to your body that gives the, the, the appearance that you belong or you've covenanted yourself with some other god. I would argue that tattoos today probably are done for a totally different reason. But, this is the, the way you live your daily life, God says, I want you to eradicate every temptation to idolatry there possibly might be in your life. So why is it that idolatry was such a huge temptation to Israel? And when you read the Old Testament, some of the biggest greatest stories of the Old Testament play out on the issue of idolatry. Uh, Look at Judges chapter 2. I told you I hope you brought your Bible. Judges chapter 2. And listen to this. Chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. Joshua has died. We're now in the land. We've conquered the land, or at least most of the land. And you get this. Then the Israelites did that which was evil, this verse 11, chapter 2 of Judges. They did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord and worshipped the Baals. The Baals are uh, Canaanite gods. Baal himself, or Baal, if you want to be accurate, he was the god of the thunderstorm, the god who sends rain, oftentimes related to the god of fertility. The Israelites did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and worshipped the Baals. They abandoned the Lord, the god of their ancestors, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt, They followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were all around them. They bowed down to them. They provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and worshipped Baal and the Astartes. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to the plunders who plundered them, and he sold them into the power of the enemies all around. And this begins the cycle of the book of Judges. They worship the Baals. They get captive. They cry out to God. God sends a judge who delivers them. They have peace. Act 2. They worship the gods, the Baals. They get captive. They plead to God. God sends a judge. They get delivered. They have peace. Act 3. I mean, that's the book of Judges. And you read this and you think, when are they going to learn their lesson? What is the temptation to worship other gods? And then one other. You're familiar with this one. This one's a great VBS one. 1 Kings chapter 18. This is the Elijah and Mount Carmel event. And I think in this, you begin to see why idolatry is a temptation for Israel. And I'll show you one other text I think nails it down. It actually begins in chapter 17 when God sends Elijah to go speak to the king. Elijah shows up and he tells Ahab... Verse chapter 17 and verse 1, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Okay, let's put this in context. Baal, who Israel's having a big problem worshiping, Baal is the God of the thunderstorm. We mentioned this earlier. He is the God, if you need rain, the Canaanites say you go to Baal. And here we are living in Israel, surrounded by all these people who believe that you appeal to Baal, who sends the thunderstorm. And Israel is worshiping this God, trying to get rain for their crops. 
So when Elijah walks in and says, it's not going to rain until the Lord says it's going to rain, he's throwing down the gauntlet. And he's making the claim that Baal doesn't send the rain, Yahweh sends the rain. Now that's interesting in and of itself, because now we've got a battle of the gods. And this plays out to the extent that when you get to chapter 18, now the deal is Elijah calls them to having a God contest. You call your God, I'll call my God. 450 prophets of Baal show up, 450 or 400 prophets of the Asherah show up, this female goddess, we think. And then we're going to meet on Mount Carmel, and we're going to see whose God can pull this off. You get a sacrifice for your God, I'll get a sacrifice for my God. You go first. Ready, set, pray. (laughs) And they begin praying, and they begin cutting themselves, and they begin chanting. And, And Baal will not light the fire. You know why? Well, you and I know why. Because Baal is nothing. And then in one of the greatest scenes of Old Testament monotheism, Elijah says, it's my turn. He says, but just to up the odds a bit, why don't you, why don't you take four, four buckets of water, four barrels of water and douse it? Why don't you do it again? Do it again. Three times. And then he stands back. And he says, all right, God, show them who's really God. Now, this is a, something in the text we sometimes miss. How does God light the altar? It says fire from heaven, right? What would we call that today? Lightning. Um, in Canaanite mythology, who sent lightning bolts? Baal. But it's after Elijah prays to Yahweh that lightning comes from the sky and lights the altar. But again, we back up and we ask, how is this even an issue for Israel? How do you fall into this trap of worshiping Baal? Okay, one other text, and then we'll start making a point here. Oh, this is just fun, but we'll get to a point. One of the texts, and it's in Jeremiah chapter 44. Jeremiah 44. There's a long history to what's going on in Jeremiah. Jerusalem has been overrun by the Babylonians. 587, Jerusalem gets wiped out. Lots of people have been carried off. There are people left behind. And, And Jeremiah's ministry, in part, is to go to those people and say, look, trust God, he'll rebuild us. Now listen to this. He tells them, don't go off to Egypt. Don't, you don't need to do that. God will take care of you here. And here's their response. Chapter 44 and verse 15. Then all the men who were aware that their wives had been making offerings to other gods, and all the women who stood by, a great assembly of all the people who lived in Pathros in the land of Egypt, answered Jeremiah, As for the word that you have spoken to us in the name of the Lord, we are not going to listen to you. Instead, we will do everything that we have vowed, making offerings to the Queen of Heaven and pour out libations for her, just as we and our ancestors, our kings and our officials used to do in the towns of Judah in the land, in the streets of Jerusalem. Listen to this. We used to have plenty of food and prospered and saw no misfortune. But from the time we stopped making offerings to the Queen of Heaven and pouring out libations to her, We have lacked everything and have perished by the sword and by famine. 
Why are they worshiping idols? Because they think their lives are more blessed from their false worship. Why is idolatry such a temptation for Israel throughout the Old Testament? Let me tell you this. Idolatry, every act of idolatry begins with bad theology. Theology is a fancy word preachers and professors always use. Theology is words or beliefs about God. Who is God to you? To them, God was like a genie. You rub the lamp, God shows up, you ask him for what you need, and he gives it to you. And when the genie quits coming out of the bottle, what do you do? You find another bottle. And if God is not responding to our request for rain, what do you do? You turn to Baal. And because people treated God as if God was in service to them and God owed them them something and God just, He waited for our beck and call for us to ask anything and He gives it to us. Because they believed that about God, they quit worshiping Him when God answered their prayers differently than they wanted to. That's the temptation to idolatry. That's why God has to tell them, look, you're going to get in the land, you're going to want things, you're going to ask for things, and some of these things are not for your blessing and for your benefit, and I'm not going to give them to you, but you're going to turn and you're going to start seeking it from somewhere else. You see, idolatry is not just worshiping another god. Sometimes, idolatry is worshiping a false understanding of our god. Think about this. One more text. Exodus chapter 32. Exodus 32. You're familiar with this one. Moses is on the mountain collecting the Ten Commandments, the first three of which, no other gods before me, nothing in my image or no image of me, don't misuse the name of my God. While Moses delays, Exodus 32 happens. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered around Aaron and said to him, Come, make gods for us. Who shall go before us? As for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Aaron said, Take off the gold rings in your ears uh, of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the gold rings from their ears and brought them to Aaron. He took the gold from them, formed it in a mold, and cast an image of a calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to Yahweh. He's using God's name, and he's claiming to be worshiping the same God, but he's violated the first three principles of God's law. You see, you might could say he's going to the right church. He's worshiping the right name, but he's worshiping a false conception of who God is. Now, when you define idolatry that way, 
Now I think you and I live in a time and a culture that gets uncomfortably close to violating God's law. Who is God to you? What God are we called to worship? And how you answer that is an indication of whether or not you worship the true God of Scripture or the God of culture or the God that someone else has taught you about. That's not the true God. If you worship a God that thinks, or if in your mind God is someone who arbitrarily waits for you to make a mistake so he can strike you because he just enjoys smiting people, that's not the God of Scripture. If you worship a God that is arbitrary and capricious, that is not the God of Scripture. If you worship a God who who is supposed to only make you feel good about yourself, this this phrase that's kicked around today, a moralistic therapeutic deist. Lynn sent me a fascinating article about this. And, and there's some other stuff about this. A God who says, in essence, look, I'm just here for you, and all I want for you is for you to be happy. Just live a good life, do the best you can, and I'm going to be here to make you happy. If that's your God, you're worshiping an idol, because that's not the God of Scripture. You see, idolatry is not just worshiping some other God. Sometimes it's worshiping a false impression of the true God. That's where idolatry becomes dangerous in our culture. Because again, it's not every day that we're tempted to go worship somewhere else. Another God. But is the God we worship the God revealed in Jesus Christ? Is it the God who met Moses on the mountain? Or is it a God of our own choosing and our own design? Remember when Jesus was in the garden, Satan said, look, if you bow down and worship me, I'll give you everything you want. You know the tempting thing about that? If God only is a God who gives me what I want, Jesus had it made. But that's not who God is. God gives us what we need. And Jesus said, worship the Lord God alone. And Him only shalt thou serve. There is a, an interesting description of God where God says in Exodus 34, I am a jealous God. It was there in the reading of Exodus 34. It seems like a bad marketing idea for God, doesn't it? I mean, jealous is not a word that connotes a positive feeling. Jealous. I mean, if a, if a guy gets jealous of another guy because they both like the same girl, we, we tend to think he's insecure. That, that's not God's concept of jealousy. Here's what Harold Schenck said. He, he wrote a book titled um, The Heartbeat of God. He said, jealous tells us that he is in a category all by himself. He is unique. He is the only one of his kind. It's not that he merely rejects competition. There is no competition. 
It's not that he objects to us having a choice. There simply are no equivalent choices to be made. You see, God says don't worship idols because they're worthless. They can't do anything for you. God is not threatened by idols. God gives us this command because he wants what's best for us. And he knows that if a guy plants a tree and he cuts the tree down and he burns half of it and he fashions the other half into an idol, he knows that calling on that idol will do absolutely nothing for you. And God doesn't want that for us. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. My prayer is that we know the God revealed in Scripture and the God who revealed Himself through Jesus Christ. That's the God we're called to worship. We're not going to fully understand Him. If we could, He's no bigger than we are. But if we understand the parts of Him that He's revealed to us, then idolatry won't be a problem. But if we, if we worship a concept that's not God, we can use the same name, we can, we can worship in the right way, but if it's not to the God who redeems us in Jesus Christ, it is idolatry. God, help us to know who He is. And as Jim said this morning, He is worthy of worship. I invite you to the invitation of Jesus Christ. We serve a God who sent His Son to redeem us, who revealed Himself in Jesus Christ. And He calls us to trust in Him because nothing else can save you. To believe in Him, to put Him on in baptism, and to walk a life of faith following Him. If we can help you do that tonight, please give us that opportunity while we stand and we sing.